Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest and the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, um, we, from the very beginning of this podcast, have really been blessed by uh, a lot of beautiful liturgical music um, from uh, its uh, two albums called Sublime Chant and More Sublime Chant by a group called the Cathedral Singers. They're published by GIA Publications, um, who very kindly allowed us to license this uh, from a late composer named Richard Prue. Um, this was really formative music for me. All the way back when I was still in the Southern Baptist Church of all places, I we I think my dad had brought it home from a Catholic bookstore that he happened to be at somewhere, and the music just entranced me. Um, I didn't speak, you know, I I didn't know the meaning of any Latin, um, but I somehow knew that it was intended for worship, and I it just helped me worship to listen to it. I maybe I was kind of an odd kid, but I listened to it all through high school. It was just calmed me, really helped me focus on God when I needed to kind of get distractions away. So I kind of encountered this music in a, maybe in a strange way, but I came to learn later that this is actually liturgical music. It's music that was written and there it was, it's music that was uh, setting parts of the liturgy to music. It was really exciting for me to learn that, especially coming into the Anglican services and, you know, the tunes would, were different, but, um, the, the, the songs themselves, uh, were, were the same, um, even except in English, you know, of course not in Latin. Um, so let's talk today about the, this, this liturgical music, um, that, you know, you would hear at a Catholic mass or an Anglican service where it comes from, um, and, um, you know, how we, how we, understand it um and uh, just what 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 uh what parts of it are are still ongoing today how are we continuing to you know write liturgical music uh, in the context of the worship service okay well liturgical music the first thing is we know what the liturgy is the liturgy of the eucharist for example but liturgical music we're going to use it let's use it in the sense of actually pieces of the liturgy itself that are set to music now, in our service, we have a lot of music. People often call it, let's worship. They use worship uh, recently, in recent years, as a sort of synonym for singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, that's not what worship means, but, you know, they sometimes use it that way. But there's sort of music that's hymns and things that we put in the service that aren't an integral part. I mean, the fact that we'd have a hymn, but not a particular hymn. Mm. There are certain parts that are actually pieces of the service itself. So the heart of liturgical music are actually portions of the Eucharistic liturgy, our communion service, that actually we sing. We just sing them, liturgical music. And we especially have a tremendous tradition in the West of people writing these pieces. There are traditionally, uh, for example, Bach wrote masses. He's famous for the mass in B minor. Mm -hmm. Or Mozart wrote a mass in C minor. Beethoven wrote a mass in D minor called Misa Solemnis. Yeah. You know, so they would write these musical compositions. 
So I guess we could talk about like, what do all these things have in common? What do we mean when we talk about a mass? Because we think as Anglicans, we think of some sort of Roman Catholic, but actually the elements we have in any of these masses are what we have a regular Eucharistic service. Yeah, so so we'll, we'll, we'll talk also about what the relevance is for us as, as Anglicans, but what do all these musical masses have in common? Well, there are five specific portions of the liturgy of the Eucharist. They were called the ordinary of the Mass because you had a, it didn't change with the seasons. Remember we talked about propers were things that changed, yes. like putting up Christmas lights and things, and there was something that never, the house never changes. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, house yeah. is the same. And there were certain five basic pieces that were, uh, that were typical and almost always that you would have in a Eucharistic service. Hmm. And those five, if you're going to sing anything, now they used to have, uh, you know, they used to have a, a sung Eucharist and then just a simply recited Eucharist. But if you had a sung Eucharist, there were five things you would sing. They'd have all different settings and things, but there were five things you would sing. The first one would be, early in the service was the Lord have mercy. Mm -hmm. Remember the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. This is called the Kyrie. In Greek, it's Kyrie eleison. And it would be it would be ninefold. You'd have Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have uh, you know you but you'd have each one three times. Yeah, yeah. You know you have Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's sort of a plaintive type of thing. So the first thing you'd sing would be the Kyrie. Then you'd have the glory, glory to God in the highest. Yes, and peace, which to is his called the Gloria. Yeah, yeah, Gloria at Chelsea Day was called the the Gloria. It's the great celebrating him, it's dawn hymn of the Eastern uh, morning prayer. So it's the, the it celebrates, you know, used at every Sunday service, uh, you know, ex except during Advent and Lent. And then you have the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God. Yeah. So know, that was uh, sung as well. That was sung. Yes. You'd have the holy, holy, holy at the beginning of the actual Eucharistic prayer. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory, which is called the Sanctus. Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Mm. Okay, and then you would have the Lamb of God. This is right before communion. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Agnus Dei, qui tolus peccatibundi. So these, all of these together are the ordinary, the, you would call it Those the are the ordinary, the ordinary, the mass. And so that's what, if you were a composer, and they all have different sort of themes, different, different feels to them. Like glory is a celebration, delightful celebration. Yeah. You have the sense of gravity with the creed. You have the sense of plaintive sadness, like lament with the Lord have mercy. You know, you have celebrating being in the presence of God, the holy, holy, holy. You know, the Agnus Dei, you know, is, is talking about our, our consciousness of our sinfulness in Christ, you know, saving us from it. So they have different themes. And as a musician, you could really show your stuff as a composer. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I can do all of these. Um, so those are called the ordinary. And one of the earliest versions is one of the most popular, I think, to this day is from the Gregorian chant. It's called Misa de Angelis, mm -hmm. Mass of the Angels. Yeah, these are that that really is, you know, it from those those CDs I was telling you about the Sublime Chants, it, it opens with Misa de Angelis and um that really was the from that very first Kyrie, that really was the the the, the stuff that struck me 
as most lovely. I, I, I think, um, I don't know, Father Stephen, you grew up Catholic. I, I feel like I heard yes. uh, people say that they, you know, they heard it so often they got bored of it, but I, I it was just amazing for oh, me. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. I, I grew up with it, um, uh, and I loved it. I mean, I was, I still think, you know, the priest would sing out the first, Gloria in excelsis Deo, and then we'd all think, et in terra pax hominibus bone, you know, we go on like that. Uh, now, normally the Misa de Angelus is more, uh, is more subtle than that, but later on you have all sorts of different compo- uh, settings you can have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had a, we had a very celebratory setting. Yeah, yeah. You know, very, uh, whereas you can have very, you could have this very, like in sublime chant, but they all have the exact same melody line. Yeah, yeah, I see. Well, I mean, I imagine that these uh, you you would have so many different kinds of variations. You know, um, how did how did everybody stay together? <laughs> I guess. Well, people knew them like we know our liturgical sure. our liturgical settings. Like here in our diocese, we have we tend to use the same holy, holy, holy mm-hmm. sanctus, and you know, one actually written by a parishioner at our cathedral. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of shared across the diocese. We love it because it, what's beautiful, it's like a, it, it, they're like Christmas carols. What people used to love about them is everybody knew them. Right. No matter where you were, you could throw yourself in. It wasn't like, here's a hymn no one else knows. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, exactly. Everyone knew you could throw yourself into it. And so, and by the way, the Misa de Angelis, four of the five items are included in the, um, uh, in the Sublime Chant recording. Yes, yes, that's right. I, I so think... they have the Curie, the Gloria, the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. They don't have the creed. That's correct. Creed. That's correct. Yeah, it's it's really just, it's its really lovely to listen to. Um, and apparently, you know, what little I know of, of um, Richard Prue, he was a very, just very, very creative guy. And, you know, him mixing the bells in with the, the Kyrie. And he, he was very attentive to kind of putting you in the, kind of simulating the, the worship space or the sanctuary. Uh, that you were, you know, coming into and 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 participating in. So apparently, he's a very amazing yeah, he, man. He reminds me sort of Tchaikovsky in the sense that when he when you actually read the directions for the um, 1812 overture, it should have every city bell in in Moscow mm. ringing and 40 <laughs> cannons. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> giving it a context. Nice, nice, nice. Well, great. Well, so let, let's talk about some of the other settings. That's Misa de Angelis, but let's let's talk about some of the the other settings. Obviously, you know, we're going to have a lot more from some very famous people, right? Yes, a lot. Uh, one thing I should mention, though, is at the end of the uh, the early Renaissance, you know, starting out with the late fifteenth century and the early sixteenth, uh, is what you had was polyphony became very uh, very popular. Hmm. Is very Renaissance music. I mean, lines going all over the place, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Going in all directions. And this actually almost killed liturgical music in the West hmm. because the church objected, saying it was becoming such performance music that people couldn't make out the words anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was considered a problem. This is worship music and was more a matter of, uh, you know, with the instruments and things and the settings were so late that it was just sort of music noise. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful noise. Yeah. But noise, and so the person who saved liturgical music this way, uh, as we're told, and is Palestrina. Hmm. He wanted to prove that you could do a beautiful, you could take full advantage of all the beautiful um, 
findings of the Renaissance, Renaissance music, but you could do it with still being honest to the texts. So he wrote his famous Mass of Pope Marcellus, yeah. Misa uh, Pape Marcelli, uh, which really sort of saved liturgical music in the Western Church. Yeah, I um, I remember the that Renaissance polyphony, right? I mean, Th- Thomas Tallis is the name that stands out, right, for me. Is that is that described that era, uh, pretty well? Well, uh, he's a little bit later, okay. but he is, is polyphony. It is polyphony. But I mean, the ones that they had to get past were, if you look at the really earliest stuff uh-huh. that you normally only can find in really if you're really a buff in the stuff. I have one of my sons loves it. Yeah, but it is really over the top. <laughs> It is to music what uh, Baroque is to architecture. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, okay. Um, great. So, so we 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 end up having more composers doing m- more of this stuff. Um, so, uh, but w- what is it that um, really st- attracts attracts composers to 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 these settings? Well, let me go back a second. And tell them about some of the specific people. Okay, some people sure. I want some names to look mm-hmm. up. For example, in England, we think of uh, William Byrd and Thomas Tallis. Yeah. Are the classic uh, masses. Although we have later things. We have um, Vaughan Williams, for example, is composed that. Uh, in modern times in Russia, we have, uh, remember, Arvo Part yes. in Estonian. I, Arvo Part, it's, it's a beautiful song. I'm a huge Arvo, Arvo Part so fan. I. I, you know, I think every younger religious kid or, or you know, young adult just went nuts for him <laughs> so yeah i can't listen to his magnificat without weeping it's so good it's beautiful well we have uh in the german-speaking world we have haydn list schubert and bruckner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's quite a yeah, list that's, so remember that's we that's talked like... about we had uh we had uh mozart and uh beethoven before we mentioned yeah the french have gounod and Fauré. Mm-hmm. uh the italians puccini rossini verdi well, yeah. it seems a little bit like, uh, you know, going to an art museum and seeing all these famous artists. But every it seems like everyone has their Madonna and Child, right? Like their their take on on these classic themes. So it's a, is it a little bit like that with with liturgical music? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the things about it. Since everybody's done it, you can actually put yourself in this. Uh, it's like a competition. You're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're putting yourself with all the other artists of time who've done the same work with exactly the same material, the very same words. You know, you have you have the same palette. You have all the materials they have. What can I do with this? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people found that as incredibly attractive. You know, this this line of greats who put their hand to this as an exercise, saying, "What could I do? Given I have could be inspired by what they've done, I could have my own unique take." Again, it's like classic compositions, like the Annunciation. Mm. You know, artists would like to try that. How wh- I want to do my Annunciation. What would that look like? Yeah, but the classic yeah. things of the Virgin, the Angel, you're not start. You know, you you start with the classic basics. So that's one of the things that made it most attractive, I think, to people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you've also got right the, the 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 opportunity to just kind of explore different themes with different musical uh, m- musical styles, right? You know, so it really well within the ordinary, there the the different pieces have different feels to them. The Curia, yeah, clearly is different than the Gloria. Yeah. One celebratory. And even within the Gloria, there are different movements. 
you know, within it. You can, and so some beautiful things as transitions between those movements, yeah. you know, and uh, no, each one is very, when you listen to these composers, is very, have all sorts of possibilities. So it's not the same thing going through five different songs. Yeah, yeah. There's a different feel. So I have heard of something called a requiem. What's a requiem exactly? Because, you know, I mean, there's a famous Mozart one, of course, um, but that that's a, that's another Verdi's Requiem is too is very very famous. Yes, yes. I mean, there's there's a lot of them. Um, a lot of them. But that that seems to be one of those, uh, you know, one of those settings, um, you know, that, that I hear mentioned alongside these things. So, what's a Requiem? How does it fit in? Well, a Requiem is a special type of Eucharistic service, but it's really different from the others in the sense that some of the key elements are missing. For example, we don't have a Gloria. Mm. We're not going to have a credo at the at a, at a funeral service. Okay, yeah. so we don't have those, but we do have some other pieces. The most famous of them was the Dies Irae, Day of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, talking about the judgment. It's an amazing uh, uh, a poem in Latin, Dies Irae, Dies Ila. Uh, to give you an idea, it starts out day, in English, would be Day of Wrath, O Day of Mourning. See fulfilled the prophet's warning, heaven and earth and ashes burning. Mm-hmm. So you've been through a few of these. Oh, yes. I used to uh, sing in the funeral choir. Oh, wow. So um, I've certainly sung the DSRA. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it can be very, very powerful. I mean, it's sort of the heart of the of one of these compositions is your DSRA. It's a very long piece. It's called a sequence. A sequence is something you read before the gospel. Yeah. You know, you sang before the, the gospel. Uh, it was, it, uh, so that was the, you had that. But sometimes you'd also have like the in paradisium. You know, it's it's our committal. To, you know, we commit them into your hands, Lord, yeah. into paradise with your angels in paradisium. So people liked writing these sure. as a special way to deal with the the, uh, the question of mortality, facing mortality and hope. Hmm. This is where we have. Uh, remember where they're P A Jesus Domine Dona Eis Requiem. They say that in Monty Python. Yeah, I remember that. Hit themselves over the head. That comes from the D A uh, from the D A Sire. The the last words. Lord, all pitying Jesus, bless, grant them thine eternal rest. Mm. Is the very la- the very last words of the DA series yeah. translating English. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And some of the lines I thought as a kid were amazing. Uh, I was talking about, look at this the thing. It starts out with how horrible the judgment is, you know, this horror. But then this great hope. Uh, I'm, it says, thou the sinful woman savest, thou the dying thief forgavest, and to me a hope thou savest. Hmm. You know, uh, so it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful hymn, or uh, a sequence. So that's what a, a requiem was. It's a special Eucharistic service held at a funeral. Well, it's I, I really like you know talking about and learning about these things, especially because of course you know the church was one of the great um, patrons you know of the arts, um, and so much of what's shaped our culture um, has come come from the church has come out of the church is, you know, commissioned by and for the church, you know, so many like referencing visual art again, you know, so many famous works by people were, you know, triptychs for altars and things like that. And on the musical side, it's, it's a similar thing that, you know, artists, you know, plied their skill to adorn um, the, the Eucharistic service. And it really came around. It, it had that function um, so, uh, uh, but you know, it's, there's also really beautiful in its own right. Um, but it, it's in the context of that function of, of Eucharistic, uh, of Eucharistic worship there. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really 
you know, beautiful thing to appreciate and, and also to be proud of, uh, as, as a Christian, regardless of your denominational heritage that, you know, this, this, this is, this stuff is kind of the common heritage of the Western, of the Western tradition. Right. I'd say it's still ongoing today within the Anglican church in North America. We have a movement called United Adoration. Hmm. Yeah. which is many artists are involved in this that is specifically dedicated to, to developing new service music. That's right. That's right. You specifically to, to deem these same kind of things to actually put to music elements of our Eucharistic service. Not just more, not just songs, uh, you know, to sing hymns, but actually taking parts of the actual service and putting them and setting them to music. Yeah, that's right. And I'll go ahead and um, I'll, I'll put the, the United Adoration website in our, in our show notes here for this episode. Um, but yeah, those efforts, you know, always, I, I think the, the, um, art in the church, I think finds, it, it just finds a real home, you know, in these, uh, especially in the context of, of the Eucharistic, uh, service. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to be proud of. Again, the church is a reason why historically the church had so much to do with art is frankly, is a beautiful thing, is this is a place where people wanted to devote the best we had to God. And it's also the way artists could support themselves. Where else could artists actually make a living, you know, actually do something and get uh, remunerated for their efforts? So so many of these things were under patronage. Mm -hmm. Somebody in the church would want, would, would simply help pay a musician, you know, or pay an artist, you know, to do these things, you know, uh, to, to add something, to give something to the beauty of the church. Thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.